In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hi everyone, Patrick here. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. We're still talking about entrepreneurship and we're going to take a different angle today. My guest is Mike Moyer. He is the author of Slicing Pie, Fund Your Company Without Funds. And there's an updated version, which is Slicing Pie Handbook. He also has a really cool software that is used to equitably track the non-cash expense side of things. Anyway, it's a very fascinating book and software as well. And his reach is huge. And you'll hear that in the interview because most uh, startups end up in legal dispute because most partnerships or most companies start as partnerships 50-50 or 33-33-33. It's like it's cut just down the line depending on how many founders there are. It's very interesting. And so Mike figured out a way to equitably track it. He sells thousands of books a month. He also works around the world. The book's been translated into multiple languages. You definitely want to pay attention to this. I think there's relevance to the content, the things we get into to any size of business of how you value something that's not necessarily cash related. But also one other thing, if you guys want to stick with me to the end, this is something that I was sent for my birthday by my mom. And it was based on an archaeological dig in New York City. And these bottles were pulled up that has to do with an ancestor of mine that formed the original mineral water company in the United States. So I'm going to tell a little story at the very end of the podcast. So if you guys want to listen to that, stay tuned. If not, totally fine too. If you like what you're hearing, go back and check out the previous episodes on entrepreneurship and also the the previous seasons as well. So thewellstandard.com is where you'll get the show notes as well as previous episodes, but also go on to iTunes, give us a good review that always helps to keep us present for those that are looking for ways in which they can broaden their perspective on wealth strategy, entrepreneurship, and other things financial. Okay, that's it. I'm going to get to my interview with Mike. Hope you guys enjoy. See ya. Okay, so here's the story around this bottle. And I just played some of the stuff that Mike and I talked about at the end, you know, once the official interview ended. Hope you guys enjoyed that. It was really interesting. So like clean drinking water, mineral water was really big in Europe, apparently. And so my ancestor, Samuel Hanbury Smith, and my middle name, it's kind of a different middle name, but my middle name is Hanbury. My son, Jack, his middle name is Hanbury as well. We're kind of keep it in the family. This was one of the original ancestors that came over from Sweden, I believe. And he was a doctor and he came over, was originally in Ohio, then went to New York City, but he founded this mineral company. And for those of you who have seen The Greatest Showman, it's um, based on P.T. Barnum. There's a character in there, Jenny Lind. She's like the singer. She, I'm not sure if that was her actual song or not, or part of this more modern movie. 
But Jenny Lind is the one that funded my ancestor. She's the original investor. She invested the equivalent about half a million dollars today, like 3,500 bucks back then and invested. This was the first company and he built his plant. So I'm trying to get more information on it. There's a bunch of history there. Mike told me you should get the intellectual property, the websites, the URLs and uh, domains, and it could be in the public domain and said to start a little company and maybe have it as one of those kind of novelty uh, water companies. So anyway, I, I did that already. I reserved the domains and going to go about getting the IP if it's available. And then I'm going to involve my kids as well. So I'll, I'll keep you guys posted on that. But it was kind of a novelty, especially coincidental, given the fact that we're talking about entrepreneurship. So now I'm going to put my entrepreneurial mind to a new test and involve my kids. And uh, we'll see what happens. I'll keep you guys posted. Okay. Anyway, that's what I wanted to, to share with you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your week and definitely tune in next week. We have more exciting guests on the docket. This one is, I would say, trailblazers of the entrepreneur writing space, which is Michael Gerber, who wrote E-Myth and the E-Myth for pretty much every major profession that's out there. So you guys will enjoy the, that interview. Go on to the website, thewellstandard.com and uh, get the show notes all the links to Mike's books as well as his website will be there. Definitely check that out. It'll broaden your knowledge of how company structures work and how entrepreneurship works. I think you guys will get a kick out of it. Okay, Mike, it's awesome to have you on. Thank you for taking the time today. Welcome. So Mike, I've known you for a couple of years, connected with you at different events, and you have an intriguing way in which you look at entrepreneurs. And it's more of what entrepreneurs don't usually realize when they're starting because they're so focused on the idea and the product and so forth. So why don't you take an opportunity just to talk to listeners about what you discovered in the startup world, the entrepreneur world, and how you've helped them and guided them to minimize failure and maximize success. Well, in general, so many entrepreneurs, they want to go out and raise a lot of money and grow fast and grow big. And then if you look at our heroes of Mark Zuckerberg, become these awesome entrepreneurs, these celebrity entrepreneurs, so unlikely that it's, it's not worth worrying about. Everyone's swinging for the fences all the time. I've made a pretty decent living as an entrepreneur. I'm proud of having made a living as an entrepreneur, but I hit singles and doubles, not home runs all the time. So I think most entrepreneurs that make a living as an entrepreneur do so by hitting singles and doubles and a couple of triples here. And because people are always swinging for the fences, they always want to grow as fast as they can, raise a lot of money as fast as they can, which I think causes a lot of problems to the bootstrapping concept where you can invest, the idea is to invest as little amount of money as possible and get the most return. So I get ROI, how do you solve your problem is with the least amount of money as possible. And Lean Startup, I still know you have the Lean Startup book on your, on your desk there. Which, stack, which, yep. which is a great tool and a great concept. The one thing that I encourage people to change with the concept, instead of minimally viable product, I want to make people really do minimally valuable product. And by valuable, I mean the minimum you can charge for. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs building products and giving away for free and having free beta testers. And this, this whole process creates a false sense of value creation. So I know you can give away for free and not pay for it, but will they actually pay for it? Hmm. One of the things that's been missing from the equation often is the of capturing revenue very early on. And the other side that I like to work with entrepreneurs on is the whole idea of what are your cost structures? What does it actually run, cost to run your business if you were running it? So entrepreneurs are unique and they can finance themselves by not paying for stuff. Everyone else has to finance themselves by taking out loans or selling equity or earning money. We have to pay for our, pay our bills. The startups don't have, pay, don't have to pay their bills. So this idea of we can finance ourselves by not paying for stuff gives us a false sense of what our costs are. So I work with a lot of student entrepreneurs. We can undercut the big boys because our costs are so low. 
the only reason your costs are low is because you're not paying yourself, you're not paying rent, you're working out of your dorm room. So those are real costs that you're just not paying for some reason because you don't have to or you get it. Because you want to understand what those costs are so that you can get economics behind your business. Those are two areas that I focus on a lot on. And of course, the third one is how you divide up the equity in the startup company. So maybe get into that because that's what initially intrigued me is the way in which most companies, I would assume, start is typically in a simple divide it in half, right? 50-50. Some of the things you just said are vital because there often isn't consideration for all the value involved in starting up a company. So can you maybe go through and walk through that whole theory, that idea, and then maybe use some, some examples? Sure. And I want to pause for one minute and ask you a question. Sure. Am I getting washed out by the sign behind it? To my yeah, a little bit. I mean, most are listening to this, but yeah, if you want to okay. block this. <laughs> I'm not sure what I can do. Can you hang on? Can you give me this I get it. So equity splits are the first deal people do. The first thing they do is sit down with the partners and they say, how are we going to split the equity? And like you said, a lot of them go 50-50. The majority of startups go 50-50. They say, we're buddies, we're friends. Let's go half and half. Or they'll say, your idea so you're more important than me, so you get 51%. Or you're a lot more important than me, so you get 60%. And no matter what number you pick, it's going to be wrong because things always change. The only way to get your equities bit accurate is to be able to effectively predict future events. So my equities bit is based on what you're going to do in the future. So you promise to work full time, for instance. You promise to work really hard. You promise to give me a lot of customers. Or you promise that you're going to build a great brand. Or you promise you're going to invest money. Or I promise you that we're going to be worth a lot of money. Or I promise you that we're going to raise money. If I could predict the future... I can get it right but because I can't predict the future. I can't get it right. That's the biggest mistake people make is that they go into this and they divide up equity and advance of any work being done. And because they can't predict the future, they have to renegotiate later on. And renegotiation means it's something along the lines, if I don't feel like I have enough equity, so I'm going to come to you and say, I don't have enough. I'm trying to get you to give me some of your equity or reduce your holdings. People who have more than equity than they deserve rarely bring it to people's attention. If you have less than you deserve, you feel like you deserve, you always bring it to people's attention or you feel miffed or, or taken advantage of. So one of the problems we have is, if I give you 50% of my company and I, you do all the work, you feel like you're short-sheeted. So your motivation level goes way down. So if I give you 10%, you may feel good about it for the first six months, but the next six months, you don't feel too good about it. If you had a 50% cut and I renegotiated a 30% cut and you're still doing the same amount of work, it's a problem. So no matter what happens in the future, it's gonna be wrong. And it's a fundamentally flawed system. All the advice we hear, along those lines, is just plain wrong. And it's extremely common for people making mistakes. The attorneys I've talked to estimate that 60 to 80% of all equity deals wind up in disputes that requires legal intervention. That means the chance of your equity split failing is greater than the chance of it succeeding. And this is a problem that I personally, throughout my career, it made me petrified to work with partners, frankly. And when I did, I often got screwed. One time, I was on the receiving end of a bad equity split. I mean, I got more than I deserved. It was great. I mean, a lot of money. It was fantastic, but I didn't really deserve it. Most of the time, it was just me getting screwed because I didn't know better. But now I know better. And the slicey pie model, which I've written several books about, is a solution to that problem. It solves it 100%. And it even extends to intellectual property, to office space, to cash contribution. Like you have a way to value monetarily in a sense, like with slices of pie, right? But you have a way to, to value really all everything that goes into a company, whether it's the market value of one of the founders who is taking a 50% pay cut, whether it's office space that, you know, even with the college students you talked about, I mean, they're paying rent. So 
there's value there if, if it's being used partly for a startup. So maybe talk about that before we move forward is just how you discovered all these different pieces to a startup that were valuable that weren't necessarily taken into consideration with the traditional model. That's a really good point. So in startups, we tend to concentrate on what the future is going to hold. There's, there's unknowable things, predictions about the future. What is it going to be worth? If I think it's going to be worth a billion dollars and I give you 1% of that, you're going to be rich on your wildest dream. So this whole focus on the future, what kind of real, most people don't realize is that everything has a fair market price. Most companies that are business, established companies, pay their bills. You're in business, you pay your bills. I'm in business, I pay my bills. If I go to the doctor expecting to pay his bills, everyone's bill is paid. The startups don't pay their bills. So the value of something is what you would have paid if you did pay. So if I'm you know, stuck in someone's garage, McDonald's restaurant in my garage, they got to pay me. If a law firm wants to license my likeness for their logo, they have to give me a license. Companies that can pay do pay. But we do pay for employees. We do pay for rent. We do pay for supplies and equipment. All these things have fair market values. And then the price that you would pay if you could pay, because you will be paying when you can pay. Your company has $100 million in financing. You're going to pay for your rent. You're going to pay for your salaries. You're going to pay for your travel expenses. So everything has a fair market value. And that's the part that's, that we got to focus on is what we pay if we could pay. It's always the same question. What would I pay if I could pay? And then I keep track of that. And by keeping track of what I would pay, it gives me a feel for what my company cost structure is going to be when it actually becomes in full force. Because when I reach break even, that means I'm paying for everything. I can't reach break even if I'm not paying full salary. I can't reach break even if I'm not paying my rent because I'm leaving that I'm, I'm, fall, I'm overstating profits and understanding expenses. So a break even implies a fully loaded expense report and income statement, income expenses. So that's the starting point. And you have a you have an online software. Your book talks a lot about this, but you have a way in which you quantify that value, right? Where there isn't money to pay it, right? But you're able to quantify it so that at some future point in time, it will have essentially an equitable stake going forward. Correct? Yeah. The best way to think about it is a game of blackjack. Do you know how to play blackjack? Uh huh. So let's pretend that you and I go play blackjack together as a team, not as opponents, but as a team. And we're friends. We're going to split the winnings 50-50. We don't know if we're going to win. We don't know how much we're going to win. We don't know how long it's going to take to win. All we know is that we're going to be friends. We're going to have a good time playing the game. So we go to the table, we for $1 on the same hand of blackjack. The dealer deals two aces. So we're going to split the aces and double down, right? I'm out of cash and you're not. So you put two more dollars down. So you bet $3 and I've only bet a dollar. <clears throat> we still don't know if we're going to win or how much we're going to win or how long it's going to take to win. The future is still unknowable. What we know for certain is that you bet $3 and I bet a dollar. If we win, does 50-50 sound fair? Nope. No, it should be 75-25. That is logical. That is obvious. That is unambiguous. There's no other way to think about it. Now, I got a deal for 50-50. I could sue you and probably win because you agreed to it, right? Yep. But just because you agreed to it and just so they can legally enforce it doesn't make it fair. What's fair is that your share of the winnings should be based on your share of the bets. And when you contribute to a startup, it's exactly the same thing. The bet is betting on the profits or capital gains of the company. The value of our bet is equal to the fair market value of our contributions. So if you work for me for a year and you're worth $100,000 and I don't pay you, you have essentially bet your salary. You haven't magically bet more than your salary. You haven't bet less than your salary. You've only bet your, your unpaid portion of your salary. Now, if you take a 50% pay cut, I pay you half your salary, you're betting the other half. If I use your garage to run my company and I don't pay you rent, you're betting the value of the rent. If you bring a screen printing press, that you had in your basement to engage with the company, 
you're betting the fair market value, like the screen printing press. If you buy a plane ticket and hotel and I don't reimburse you, you're betting the value of those expenses. You contribute and you're not paid for a fair market value, that becomes a bet. And slicey pie is very simple. Your share of the equity is based on your share of the bets. And maybe talk one thing that wasn't mentioned is cash. Like let's say somebody partner that isn't going to actively work in the company, but puts cash in. So how do you value cash? Or is it the same type of value as if somebody took a pay cut? Is it the same type of value? Well, there's, there's two kinds of contributions. There's a non-cash contribution, which are things like your time, and your ideas and your relationships, things that don't require you to cash out of your pocket. And there's a cash contribution, which is cash out of your pocket. So if I paid you $100 an hour to work for me, and you wanted to buy something that costs $100, how many hours would you have to work in order to earn enough money? Well, I already know the answer. So it's like it's two hours, right? Because you have to pay taxes on it, don't you? Yeah. So when I pay you, I pay social security taxes and employment taxes. When you receive the money, you pay income taxes. When you buy the thing, you pay sales taxes. So you may have to work two hours. So cash has a higher, is more scarce and has higher taxation than non-cash. Because contributed after those taxes. Yeah, it's after those taxes. Plus, if you gave me a million or $100,000, would you want me to think twice before I spent it? <laughs> or just yeah. go willy-nilly? No, you want to think. Investors want you to think twice. You have to align the interest of the the investor, the entrepreneur. So in slicing pie, there's a unit called a slice. It's a fictional unit of at-risk contributions like a poker chip. So for every dollar in non-cash you contribute, you're you're betting two slices. For every dollar in cash, you're betting four slices. And I call those normalizers or multipliers. And those 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 that formula smooths the difference between cash and non-cash, and reflects the great deal of risk we take when we start a company. And so that's how you account for it. So at the end of the, when you reach break even or series A, your share is equal to your slices divided by all the slices. Just like in poker, it was your chips divided by all the chips. I know we're using different words to describe certain things. I have a couple of your books. This is one of Mike's books. It's the actual handbook, slicing by a handbook. Maybe talk about the successful experiences you've seen by groups using this model. Like, do you have any off the top of your head that use this? It's been equitable and they went on to raise more capital or capital, and every, everyone was happy. One of my favorite examples is a company called Cloudsploit. It's actually a case study on my website about it. This is, this is a guy who had an idea for a company, and he kind of posted it to Reddit. And some guy posted back that he thought it was a good idea. And the two of them, having never met each other, used Slicing Pie to start their company. And months later, they, they raised money. They went on a group built what's pretty, a pretty substantial company now, having never, never met each other. So we think, oh, we have to be, be really you know, five people we work with who you really trust. It's less if I corrects for all that by providing the right kinds of protections. In 2010, I published the first white paper on slicing pie and I distributed it to entrepreneurs as far and wide as I could. In 2012, I wrote a book called Slicing Pie. In 2015, I wrote the Slicing Pie Handbook, which is the one you have there, which is the better one. It's been translated to 12 different languages. I sell thousands of copies every month all over the world. I have people, thousands of users on my software. Never once have I heard it not work. I never once have heard of a single instance where Slicing Slice Pie couldn't solve the problem. Whereas I said before, 68% of all every traditional deals wind up used to require legal intervention. So Slicing Pie, when used properly, works every time. It's a universal model, just like blackjack works the same in any country where you are. It doesn't matter. Fair is fair. If our dad gives us a cookie and says, split it up, boys, the only fair way is to split it half and half because we both equally paid nothing for the cookie. If you bought the cookie, you could eat the whole thing. Fairness is not a matter of opinion. It's, it's a matter of fact. There's only one version of it. The book has been used all over the place. It was just recently translated into Persian. And it's used for uh, the Iranian market, which is a very different culture and very different economy. But it's the same model there as it is anywhere else. 
Yeah, I saw a presentation earlier this year from a gentleman from Saudi Arabia. And it was fascinating just because the stereotype of that country is that, you know, it's just this war-torn, very antiquated culture. But they have thousands of startups and there's a huge entrepreneurial drive there. It's pretty interesting. There, there has you know, to be because stable employment is, just, is not as easy to come by. Exactly. That's very true. That'll create the environment in which entrepreneurs... So for startups, hopefully everyone's resonated with some of these points. Is there relevance to existing companies that may be a couple years old and they want to scale. It may require capital contribution. It may require debt. It may require more risk. How have you worked with existing companies that are maybe taking things to the next level, but already established? Well, if you're already established, your stock theoretically has a value already. Once your shares have a value, you don't need slicing buy. Slicing buy assumes you have a zero valuation. And I can't divide by zero. So I don't know. Uh, there's no way to value the stock. So I can't determine how much it costs to buy it so I can't sell it. And so once you have a value for your, your company, you can use the stock price of your, of your company. Now, if your company is not paying full salaries and not paying expenses like a startup company, then your company is likely overvalued because you're not written even. So in order for a company to have value and not be able to pay its bills, that's just something pretty spectacular, like super loyal customers, for instance, that people are willing to invest in. But established companies can use the, their stock price. Equity is often used as a tool for incentives to get people to work harder. I think it's a lousy incentive. Giving equity to someone in an established company is kind of a waste of time because if you don't value enough to buy it or somehow acquire it by not getting paid, giving it to you is not going to make you work harder. If you have shares in Apple Computer, you have them because you bought them, right? Now, if you need to work for Apple Computer, the fact you own the shares should not impact any way, shape, or form how hard you work for them. What will impact the way you work for them is where you get paid salary and your particular bonus and how you're managed. That matters. Your ownership in the Apple does not matter. What it does show is that you believe in Apple and you think that the future is bright, but it doesn't indicate how much you're going to work. If you weren't willing to buy Apple shares, you might still work their hardest for them, but you don't, it just says you don't believe in them. So by giving it to you, I just give you something you don't value. When you give equity incentive to people, it doesn't have the same impact as people think it does. What's really useful in established companies have a good bonus program, good goals and milestones planned out, and manage them better. Just throwing equity at them usually doesn't work. But if you do give, have an equity, you should always give the opportunity for employees to buy into the equity using their salary. So like I'll pay you, I'll pay you a bonus of $10,000. You can either buy equity with it or not. Those that can buy equity with it are showing an interest in the company. The difference between publicly traded companies and private companies is private companies are harder to buy and not everyone can buy them. So having the opportunity to buy is a good option for companies. Have you done much work with, uh, with Carta? Carta, the, the tracking software? Yeah, the, just the equity management. I've done more work with, with a company called CapShare. CapShare, yeah. It's more CapShare, companies. Carter, there's a number of these companies that manage the equities, but equity becomes so complicated so fast that Excel becomes a kind of a lousy tool for it. And Carta and CapShare are all great companies that once your company shares them a value, it's a good tool to use. Slicing buy is for use before you reach that point. And one of the things that those companies do well is they manage different classes of stock and stock options. When the money starts coming into investment, it starts getting pretty convoluted in terms of how people are covering their own butts. And they'll create different classes of stock and different stock option programs and different preferred shares and all kinds of things. Not diluted. Yeah, all kinds of rules. And each one of those classes of stock have to be tracked according to the standing stock is, otherwise it's confusing. In the beginning, we're all in the same boat. Your dollar of risk is worth the same as my dollar's risk. So I have to treat you the same. I can't give you a special class of stock if you're on my team. So slicing by always assumes we're going to give out plain vanilla common stock to the, to the participants. 
then once the, the series of investor comes in, they can add all the rules on top of that. And you got to decide as a startup if, if those rules are worth the investment. One of the people I interviewed a couple months ago was one of the founding developers of Carta. And I found the philosophy they have is, is pretty interesting. The, the CEO has this theory about how work has evolved over the years, where it's gone from very kind of indentured servant in medieval times to slavery to now paycheck and then ultimately with equity. And it's interesting in using obviously their platform, it does make it easier to manage and understand and value. What do you think is the future of how equity is handled based on what you're paying attention to? Well, I think it's getting complicated enough that those, those programs are, are important. What we're, so we're seeing is it used to be that capitalism was about, the, was about owning the means of production. Now it's about renting the means of production or borrowing the means of production or leasing the means. So we don't have to own anything these days. We don't have to own a factory. We don't have to own a machine. We don't have to own a cotton gin. All we got to have is our brains. And the tools are all there free for the taking. But those things are all have a value. And just because we're not paying for them doesn't mean they're not valuable. So to the extent that we can use equity to acquire these things, it's important. There's thing, you know, Bitcoin and cybersecurity, those are all tools that are going to, we're going to start seeing more and more of. But in the early days, when you're just starting out, you don't need super tight security around those things. You just need to keep track. I hope the future of startups is fair equity splits. So many companies get into unfair deals that have to be unwound. It's, it's a real heartbreaker. I want people to use slicing pie and then once they, bake their pie to move on to card and capture and comes like that. D-legals is another one. You know. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. What would you say are some things that entrepreneurs, you learn more about slicing pie? Like what are the best ways to go about doing that? Well, the website slicingpie.com, of course, is always up and running. And slicing pie has a, we have a, we have a software called the Pie Slicer, which is, which tracks your pie in real time based on the contributions. Think about, you can do accounting in Excel if you want. Or you can do it in QuickBooks. Slicing pie is to QuickBooks what for the equity split. Counting software tracks what you do spend. Slicing pie tracks what you don't spend, hmm. which is rarely something people mostly use don't track. But the things you track in slicing pie are the things you should, you should track anyway, which are your payroll and your expenses and your. And of course, there's books available, not different languages, and so wherever your local jurisdiction is, there's usually a, a resource for you. Cool, and we'll post all those links in there. Yeah, I've used the software a couple times and. It's really simple, really straightforward, and aligns right with your book and what you teach there. Mike, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else you think is relevant to share to entrepreneurs? Because I know you teach in that space, right? You still teach at, is it Northwestern or another university? Yeah, I teach entrepreneurship at Northwestern University these days. And one of the things I always keep in mind is fairness is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. It's either fair or it's not. So anytime anyone says, base your split on some future assumptions, always kind of think, how can I get the fair, fair answer? There's only really one way to do this. So there's two ways of splitting equity. There's unfair and there's slicing pot. Okay, awesome. Well, Mike, thanks again for all your time. I appreciate it. I mean, this has been great. So I'll make sure that in our show notes online, we have all the links to your website as well as the book. Is the best way to buy it on Amazon or through your website? Amazon. We'll do that. But congratulations for all your success. I didn't know that there was that much popularity. I mean, it's awesome. It's been translated to multiple languages and you're selling thousands of copies a month. That's so awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Okay. Mike, we'll hopefully connect us sometime in the future. Okay. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. 
If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,